0: what's behind my bastards hello fellow fan of robert evans i am bz douglas and thanks for hopping into my podcast feed i am jumping in front of the actual content that you crave for a real quick plug that i hope you won't 30 seconds skip about a year and a half after interviewing robert and rebroadcasting his audiobook i decided to become a journalist myself This was back in June of 2020, and you can find my work since then at bzdouglas.substack.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at BZDUG. The big reason I wanted to jump in here real quick is to let you know that this month I released a new documentary series called State of Injustice. It focuses on exposing systemic abuses by the Ohio police, starting with the city of Euclid. You can think of it as a behind-the-bastards of Buckeye State law enforcement. This project is executive produced by Black Lives Matter Cleveland, who is wholly separated from the BLM Global Network and their nonsense and actually does meaningful work. And we have a crowdfunding campaign for the pilot season that ends on March 24th. You can watch the first two episodes and learn all about the series and the project that we're trying to do at stateofinjustice.com. Thank you so much for listening, and now, on with the show that you actually came for.
1: Chapter Four, How to Build an Army. Everything you're going to read about in this chapter really happened. It is documented history. I feel the need to emphasize that here, at the beginning, because the history I'm going to discuss is criminally underreported. I'd be willing to bet most of you have not come across any of it in textbooks or in news articles unless you've gone out of your way to learn about this particular subject. The question of why none of this is very well known is a good one, because the story I'm going to tell in this chapter is the story of a bloody, vicious, and exceptionally deadly insurgency that, had a few things broken differently, could have plunged this nation into mass violence. As it was, hundreds upon hundreds of people were killed, and the killing continues to this day. The story of this insurgency starts, as most of these stories do, with a single man named Louis Beam. Like me, Louis Beam was a Texan. Born in 1946 in Lufkin, he grew up in the America that modern conservatives still longingly hearken back to. His parents were working-class people, and his father served in combat during World War II. That tradition inspired Beam to enlist in the army at age 19. He had a pregnant wife at this point, and every reason to avoid conflict, but Beam sought out a baptism by fire. Louis Beam entered a U.S. military that was, for the first time, racially integrated. This did not sit well with him. He was a fierce supporter of George Wallace's presidential campaign, which put him in the same ideological orbit as Willis Carto's Liberty Lobby and William Pierce's band of Nazi revolutionaries. It's possible he read some of Carto's newsletters during this period. Shortly after shipping out to Vietnam, Beam and several of his comrades hung Confederate flags in their barracks as an act of protest against the civil rights movement. Bring the War Home by Kathleen Bellew provides a good context for the nature of racial strife among American soldiers in Vietnam during this period. Quote, While white and black soldiers faced combat together, the rear echelon was intensely segregated. One black soldier described Saigon as just like Mississippi. In Beam's camp at Chu Chi in Vietnam, black and white soldiers frequently exchanged insults, slights, and blows. Beams served in the 25th Aviation Battalion at a moment of escalating racial tensions. As the language of black power circulated between home and battlefront, black soldiers created a culture of afros and black berets, greeting each other with fist bumps. Some white soldiers in the 25th reported feeling alienated or threatened because of such actions. Klansmen serving as active-duty personnel in Vietnam announced plans for cross-burnings and spray-painted racial epithets on rear-echelon buildings. By 1970, the Marine Corps recorded more than a 1,000 incidents of racial violence at installations, both in Vietnam and back home. Now, in 1964, four members of the United Clans of America murdered a black Army Reserve lieutenant colonel. Later in the 1960s, the Camp Pendleton clan chapter reached 200 members in size and carried out a campaign of shooting— firebombing, torture, and harassment of black marines. Louis Beam did not join the United clans until after being discharged from service, but he served in a military where racial violence was common and where membership in extremist groups by uniformed service members was common. Beam was a helicopter door gunner, manning a 50 caliber machine gun, and, by his own recollection, killing over 50 people. He expressed appreciation for the joys of killing your enemy, but also struggled with what would later come to be known as PTSD. Beam called it post-Vietnam stress syndrome. After coming home from the war, he said this to an undercover reporter at a KKK event. After I got home from the war, things didn't seem like they were before I went to Vietnam. Everything seemed different. The whole climate of the nation had changed. Before I went over to fight, most of the people seemed behind us soldiers. But when I returned, it seemed the majority of Americans were against us, against war as a whole. Louis Beam came home in 1968 and almost immediately joined the KKK. He was racist, certainly, but the primary hatred he developed in Vietnam was an intense disgust with the left and communism. In the early 1970s, he was involved in a spate of terroristic crimes, a machine gun attack on a Communist Party headquarters in Houston, and the bombing of a left-wing radio station. No one died, and he managed to avoid charges for either attack. So in 1976, he switched to a different sect of the KKK, the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, led by a guy named David Duke. Now, Duke had grown up reading Willis Carto's Western Destiny newsletter before flirting with Nazism in college, dressing in an SS uniform as he marched up and down his school's free speech alley. His Knights of the Ku Klux Klan became the most prominent Klan group of the 1970s, in large part due to Duke's decision to wed the organization more closely with outright Nazism and help organize Klan border patrols to stop migrants. Racial paranoia and fear of communism led to a vast surge in Klan ranks throughout the state, throughout the late 1970s. In 1975, there were an estimated 6,500 Klansmen nationwide. By 1979, that number had increased to 10,000 plus another 75,000 Klan sympathizers. For a while, David Duke seemed like a good pick for someone who might manage to take on the role of being the next George Lincoln Rockwell. He was charismatic and good at drawing media attention. In 1978 and 1979, he became a constant figure on American talk shows. In 1975, Willis Carto covered Duke's campaign for Louisiana Senate in an issue of his weekly magazine, The National Spotlight. Carto wrote, He sees the Klan not as a terrorist organization, but as a political movement with ideological leadership. Duke only won about a third of the vote, but that was still seen, rightly, as a massive improvement in the political fortunes of the fascist right. Gallup reported that the number of Americans with favorable opinions of the Klan had nearly doubled from 1965 to 75. Duke, then, represented the best hopes of mainstreamers in the late 1970s. Beam and a number of other Klansmen would wind up on the side of the vanguardists, One of these men was Bill Wilkinson, a former mid-level leader in Duke's clan who created his own group, the Invisible Empire, in the late 1970s. Bill was noteworthy for his sheer willingness to make violent threats, saying in an interview, I'm the only clan member who believes in having guns around. These guns aren't for shooting rabbits, they're for wasting people. In 1979, his clan protested a march by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Decatur, Alabama. They showed up with clubs and wound up fighting with both the marchers and local police. Gunfire ensued and three people were wounded. No one was killed, but that would change in November of 1980 when Wilkinson's Klan marched against communist demonstrators in Greensboro, North Carolina. They opened fire there, killing five of the protesters. Later investigation revealed that the police were complicit in the massacre, actively directing officers away from the site of the protest in order to ensure that no law enforcement was present when the Klan attacked. None of the killers were found guilty in a subsequent criminal trial. They argued that firing into the crowd, often from the back of moving vehicles, had been justified because of the threat to their lives posed by the communists. A later civil trial found the Klansmen and the local police jointly liable for the death of one of the protesters. Greensboro was a huge moment for the Klan, and seen by many within the American fascist movement as nothing less than the first shots fired in a war to take back their country from communist infiltrators. The Greensboro Klansmen went on to become heroes in the movement, giving speaking tours and acting as living billboards for the cause. And this brings us back to Louis Beam. While he was not present at Greensboro, Beam kept extremely busy in the late 1970s. In 1979, Deng Xiaoping, the leader of China at the time, visited the United States. When he arrived in Texas, Louis Beam attempted to spray him with red paint in the lobby of his hotel. He was punched out by a security guard. Later variations of the story would mark it down as an assassination attempt against the Chinese statesman, but the reality seems to have been much dumber than that. Beam, however, was not a joke. Right around the time, he began to help operate a paramilitary training camp in Oklahoma called Camp Puller. White supremacists would gather there to train in combined arms techniques and prepare to fight in a civil war against communists, blacks, and Jews. Attendees with military experience were encouraged to wear their medals and insignia over their clan fatigues. I found a UPI article from November of 1980 covering the camp. Quote, a Ku Klux Klansman who says he is prepared to do battle against communists and homosexuals instructs explorer scouts and civil air patrol cadets and guerrilla warfare techniques at a paramilitary camp, a newspaper reports. The post, which has not been fully chartered by the Boy Scouts of America, is run by Robert John Sicente of Deer Park, who denies he is a Klan member, and Louis Beam of Pasadena, Grand Dragon of the Texas KKK. I am proud to be a member of the clan," said Bogert, a former Marine from Laporte, Texas, who said he had been a member for two years. There are only two groups I'll battle with, communists and homosexuals. That's the basic reason I joined the Klan. The article notes that concerns about the camp were initially sparked when the parents of Explorer Scouts and Civil Air Patrol cadets complained that their 15- to 19-year-old sons were learning guerrilla warfare techniques and racial slurs from leaders at the camp. Civil Air Patrol Major Paul Renfro, who investigated the camp, stated... There was nothing Boy Scout about it. They were on maneuvers, they were firing, unloading, using live ammunition, and the parents were very upset because they were told nothing about this. These guys misled the scouts. Camp Polar came together during a very different time in the United States, when membership in extremist groups like the KKK was not explicitly forbidden for active-duty service members. It was also a time in which weapons theft and the smuggling of military-grade arms to civilian militias and domestic terror groups was vastly more common. These two facts were very much connected. In 2019, as I write this episode, the state of Oregon is currently ground zero for a resurgent militia movement. You can trace the start of our most recent band of troubles back to the standoff at the Bundy compound in Bunkerville, Nevada, which led to the occupation of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon. A number of the men who were involved in that are currently helping state-level Republican legislators hide in Idaho after they fled the state in an attempt to stop a cap-and-trade bill. Oregon Governor Kate Brown sent state police to bring the recalcitrant senators in. When informed of this, Senator Brian Bokist, hiding in Idaho, said, Send bachelors and come heavily armed. Even from that brief summary, it should be obvious how groups like this work. They do not have the numbers to enforce their will democratically, and they are not willing to yield to the preferences of the majority. So they take up guns and they use violence, or like Brian Bokist, the threat of violence, to get what they want and they gamble on the fact that no one else will have the guts to use force against them. When these people are not confronted and made to face consequences for breaking the law, they will continue to push. This was the strategy Lewis Beam pursued in the early 1980s, while his camp trained new guerrilla fighters for the war he felt was coming to the United States. He looked for opportunities for him and his militiamen to enforce their own rule of law in places where they felt the government would not have the courage to stand against them. Greensboro had been proof that Klansmen could get away with taking justice into their own hands. The state had stood aside while they would murdered Communists and acquitted them afterwards. So Louis Beam looked south from Camp Puller and saw the town of Seadrift, Texas, as another place where he and his comrades could exercise their will and force the cowardly state to flee before them. Seadrift was a crabbing town with a population of around a thousand people. Life there had recently been disrupted by the arrival of roughly 100 Vietnamese refugees. Overnight, Seadrift went from a very homogeneous culture, where everyone spoke English, to a town where 10% of the people were native Vietnamese speakers. That, on its own, might not have been an issue, but the Vietnamese families proved to be extremely adept crab fishermen. They worked together in large collaborative family fishing groups and worked more efficiently and effectively than the native crabbers of Seadrift in august 1979 there was a dispute over the distance between two sets of crab traps a fight ensued and a white crabber was shot dead two vietnamese crabbers were acquitted for the shooting on self-defense grounds what happened next will sound very familiar to all of you Rumors began to percolate that the Vietnamese refugees were being funded on sketchy government welfare checks and that they'd smuggled gold out of Vietnam when they'd fled. Several of the men in Drift were Vietnam veterans and the scars of war had hardened their hatred to their new neighbors, which was ironic because the Vietnamese refugees who settled in Drift did so because they'd sided with the Americans and worked for South, the South Vietnamese government. They had more cause to hate communists than most of the white crappers who cursed them as red infiltrators. In 1980, the first of these new immigrants earned their American citizenship. This provoked a paroxysm of rage. Three of the Vietnamese boats and one mobile home were firebombed. There were beatings. One man pulled a gun on a Vietnamese fisherman walking home across a dock and shot him in the leg. Louis Beam and his clan waded into this mess with glee and consummate expertise. They started pointing out reams of propaganda, newsletters and magazines calling the Vietnamese refugees boat people and accusing them of being riddled with tuberculosis and malaria. Clan propaganda also sought to stoke fears that the new immigrants would sexually assault local white women. They even named their activities in Seadrift Operation Hemline, a reference to the modest, decent white women they were supposedly protecting. In one interview with a reporter, a Klansman in Seadrift said, quote, Galveston Bay is just like a fine woman. If you rape her, she's never good anymore. On January 10, 1981, the Vietnamese owned shrimping vessel Trudy B was lit on fire in its dock. The next night, another Vietnamese shrimping boat was burned. Local police reported seeing four white males in Klan robes starting the fires. This would prove to be but a prelude. In February of 1981, the Texas KKK held a massive Klan rally in Santa Fe, Texas, drawing three or four hundred armed paramilitaries. Louis Beam, master of ceremonies, burned a small rowboat named USS Viet Cong. He told the gathered Klansmen to pay attention to his technique because he was illustrating the proper way to destroy a boat by arson. He decried the theft of job security of real Americans by immigrants and promised that if the Vietnamese fishermen in Seadrift didn't flee by May 15th, the KKK would, quote, "...take matters into its own hands." In March, robed Klansmen started carrying out armed boat patrols at the Galveston Bay, wielding assault rifles and displaying an effigy of a lynched Vietnamese person on the rigging of their boat. Several Vietnamese families living on the water fled their homes after close passes by the clan's armed patrol. There are pictures of these patrols you can find, and they are quite shocking to behold. In one, we see seven men and one young woman in a mix of clan robes and military fatigues. They wear rifles and stare out with surly expressions into the sea. Most of them are overweight, and on an individual basis they look distinctly absurd in their costumes and military gear. But there is nothing funny about the broader image of a squadron of armed and uniform racists enforcing their own laws on American soil. Camp Polar had closed briefly after that controversy over their recruiting of Boy Scouts, but it reopened in April 1981 in the middle of all this. Dozens of uniformed militiamen began showing up again and firing their guns past the homes of several black families who lived nearby— the local sheriff complained that he could do nothing because, quote, no one has filed a complaint. They won't file complaints because they fear reprisal or potential reprisal. The mayor of Kima, a small neighboring town to Seadrift, where many of the threatened Vietnamese fishermen lived, was less sympathetic. He admitted that the sight of the clansmen in robes was disturbing, but declared, I don't have any reason to believe the Vietnamese are not safe. So help did not come from the local government or from law enforcement. Instead, it came from the Southern Poverty Law Center, who helped a group of Vietnamese fishermen file suit against the knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Beam showed up in court to defend himself wearing his Klan robes and claimed, I'm only charged with loving this country. Beam wore a gun to his own trial and challenged Morris Dees, the lawyer for the SPLC, to a duel to the death. Eventually, however, the sunlight of this court case acted as a moderate disinfectant, or at least the first sign of real resistance finally checked the Klan's escalating use of force. During the trial, video was played of Beam training militiamen at Camp Puller. In that segment, he was seen advising his soldiers on how to conduct themselves in battle. He told them, quote, utterly destroy everybody, maximum damage, maximum violence in the shortest period of time. They can do only one thing die. Finally, on December 3rd, 1989, under an avalanche of death threats, the judge issued a court order demanding an end to Klan harassment. Beam's paramilitary group, Camp Puller, and four other far-right militia training camps in the area were ordered shut down. The Vietnamese fishermen had won, but Louis Beam was far from defeated. He continued to write speeches, newsletters, and articles in various far-right journals of record, culminating in his 1983 book, Essays of a Klansman. In this book, he encouraged his fellow fascist Vietnam veterans to bring the war on home to the United States. While the legal prescriptions against Beam and his fellow Klansmen after Seadrift were more effective than the complete exoneration they received after Greensboro, it effectively did nothing to actually stop Klan organizing. While the far-right receded ever so slightly in the first years after Reagan's election, by 1984, America's fascists had realized that the president was not going to be the quasi-Nazi leader they'd hoped he might be. His failure to do things like ban abortion and reinstate segregation was proof to them that politics was useless. The mainstreamers were wrong. Consequently, the white power movement began to grow again, particularly its vanguardist section. According to Bring the War Home, quote, Scholars and watchdog groups who have attempted to calculate the numbers of people in the movement's varied branches, including, for instance, Klansmen and neo-Nazis, who are often counted separately, estimate that there were about 25,000 hardcore members in the 1980s. An additional hundred and fifty to 175,000 people bought white power literature, sent contributions to groups, or attended rallies or other events, signifying a larger, although less formal, level of membership. Another 450,000 did not themselves participate or purchase materials but read the literature. The John Birch Society, in contrast, reached only 100,000 members at its 1965 peak. A Klansman in the South might participate in burning crosses, wearing their white robe and hood, and embrace the Confederate battle flag alongside a lost cause narrative of the Civil War. A Neo-Nazi in the North might march under the banner of the swastika and don an SS uniform. But the once disparate approaches to white supremacy represented by these symbols and ideas were drawn together in the white power movement. A suburban California skinhead might bear Klan tattoos, read Nazi tracts, and attend meetings of a local Klan chapter. A National Socialist political party, the militant white Aryan resistance, or all three. Now, in this chapter, we focus mostly on Louis Beam, the KKK, and the neo-Nazis. But it's important you know that an awful, awful lot of other fascist groups were active, organizing, and growing during this period. Militant right-wing organizations popped up constantly throughout the 1980s. One important group was the Posse Comitatus. In brief, the posses were a series of militant anti-government cells. They were believers in Christian identity theology, and these true Israelites also subscribed to a conspiratorial interpretation of American history in which all government above the county level was fundamentally illegitimate. Posse believers felt that the Federal Reserve and the IRS were part of a Jewish plot to wipe out the white man. In their view, the county sheriff was the only legitimate power in the land, and if he did not act in accordance with the wishes of the county, he should be hung by the neck until dead. As a general rule, posse members were big fans of hanging. Modern-day sovereign citizens descend from the posse comitatus, and you can draw a direct line between them and many modern militia movements, including the constitutional sheriffs who supported the Bundy clan's Malher occupation. Appropriately enough, the first posse comitatus cell seemed to have been formed in Portland, Oregon back in 1969 but posse beliefs did not generate national awareness until 1983 when a guy named Gordon call got into a series of gunfights with authorities call had declared himself a tax protester in 1967 writing the IRS to let them know he would no longer pay taxes to the quote synagogue of Satan he was arrested in 1976 but got out on parole and went to ground near Medina North Dakota A warrant was eventually issued for his arrest over parole violations, which prompted U.S. Marshals to try and arrest him while he and his family were driving home from a posse-related meeting in February of 1983. A shootout ensued, and Call and his family killed two U.S. Marshals. Gordon went on the run after that, and was finally brought down in June after a vicious gunfight that left an Arkansas sheriff and Call himself dead. By the time called died, the Posse movement had metastasized into a series of townships filled with white supremacist Christian identity believers who considered the federal government illegitimate, were heavily armed, fiercely independent, and more than willing to kill for their beliefs. This was part of a broader trend on the far right to attempt to create autonomous enclaves for their ideologies in isolated rural communities. Another such group was the Aryan Nations, a neo-Nazi organization centered around a compound in Hayden Lake, Idaho. On paper, the nations were officially a Christian identity church, led by the self-proclaimed Reverend Richard Butler. In the early 1980s, Butler's group began to reach out to incarcerated white Americans, eventually leading to the formation of the Aryan Brotherhood, a Christian identity prison gang that remains influential to this day. Another Christian identity compound was, and still is, Elohim City in Oklahoma. By the early 1980s, Elohim was a totally self-sufficient community with its own sawmill, crops, and weapons ranges on 400 sprawling acres. Elohim's operations were funded by a transcontinental trucking company and construction business operated from the compound. The denizens of Elohim considered American society to be decadent and sinful beyond salvation, and they homeschooled their children and stockpiled weapons in anticipation of societal collapse. There were numerous other right-wing groups during similar things around the country in the 1980s. Most of them fell either into the mold of Elohim city, urging total separation from society, or the mold of the Aryan nations, attempting to build a white insurgency against the Zionist-occupied government. These disparate groups were tied together loosely by Christian identity theology and recruited heavily from the nascent prepping movement that had started to crop up in the 1980s. In Blood and Politics, Leonard Zeskin notes, quote, For William Pierce, survivalist events became an opportunity for National Alliance cadres to sell literature and find new recruits. Pierce wasn't concerned about human existence per se. Rather, he worried about the preservation of white genes during a time of racial decay. To ensure this preservation, he needed to influence the larger survivalist movement's direction. As usual, he began with a cold-eyed analysis. One can recognize three distinguishing traits in the survivalist, Pierce's national vanguard opined. The first was a strong personal identity, the second was a will to survive, and the third was alienation from the present society. Despite this positive assessment, Pierce also looked for weak spots. The largely individualistic approach bothered him the most. Survivalists were interested in self-preservation, like professionals practicing lifeboat ethics, rather than the advancement of the white race. So Pierce's goal in this time became to infuse white racial consciousness into the survivalist movement and then turn it from a disconnected community of armed loners into something he could use to bring about the fascist revolution he so desired. Independently, Klansman Lewis Beam spent the early 1980s working on a similar goal, spreading white racial consciousness and a desire for revolution to disaffected white Vietnam veterans. In 1982, he wrote... America's political leaders, bankers, church ministers, newsmen, sports stars, and hippies called us baby killers and threw chicken blood on some of us when we returned home. You're damn right I'm mad. I've had enough. I want these same traitors to face their enemy now, the American fighting man they betrayed, all three million of us. Beam wrote articles in which he warned of a coming mass gun confiscation. He told his readers to arm up and hide their weapons and hoped that the future might bring headlines like, quote, Millions of formerly peaceful, law-abiding citizens up in arms. Vigilantes of one and two persons take law into own hands. Politician cut in two by shotgun blast as he steps from car. Federal judge killed by bomb blast as he starts car. Judge found dead, hands tied behind back, throat cut. U.S. senator found hanging from limb of tree on river. In June of 2019, Walter Lubke, a Christian Democratic Union politician in Germany, was shot dead by a neo-Nazi terrorist. Lübke was hated for his support of Angela Merkel's open-door refugee policy. His killer had ties to a larger organization of German Nazi radicals, which included members of law enforcement, with a massive stockpile of arms and a list of other politicians they planned to murder. Their goal was nothing less than the overthrow of democratic Germany, in a manner very similar to the story traced out in those fantasy headlines written so long ago by Louis Beam. Like many white nationalists in the 1980s, Beam expressed a growing dissatisfaction with the Republican Party and American conservatives in general. He damned compromise and wrote that his readers should take up the sword, adding, The sword need not be literal, although many of us would enjoy righteous satisfaction from actually lopping off heads of the enemy. A sword in the year of our Lord 1981 can be an M16, three sticks of dynamite taped together, a 12-gauge, a can of gas, or whatever is suitable to carry out any commission of the Lord that has been entrusted to you. In 1983, Lewis Beam published an essay in the InterClan newsletter titled, Leaderless Resistance. In it, he argued that the top-down organization of traditional fascist groups, like his own clan, Rockwell's old Nazi party, and its successor, William Pierce's National Alliance, were fundamentally vulnerable to infiltration from law enforcement. This was backed up by the well-known fact that Rockwell's marches had often been half-composed of federal informants. It was also backed up by the disastrous 1981 attempt by several American Klansmen to conquer the island of Dominica. Now, Dominica is a small island nation near Venezuela. An assortment of neo-Nazi commandos, including a Klan leader named Don Black, who'd previously been the driver of George Lincoln Rockwell's hate bus, had gathered enough weaponry that they believed they could deploy enough force to overthrow the Prime Minister and install their own government on the tiny island. They could then use Dominica as a base of operations and a funding engine to support an insurgency in the United States. The whole thing fell apart before Black and his minions could set sail. FBI agents arrested 10 Nazi commandos in New Orleans on a rented boat filled with guns, dynamite bullets, and Confederate and Nazi flags. Don Black and his comrades spent a bit of time in prison, and when Don Black got out, he went on to found the neo-Nazi website Stormfront. But we'll talk about him a little more later. After Dominica, fascist thinkers like Louis Beam were eager to find a new way to organize that wouldn't just get them infiltrated by the FBI. As he noted in Leaderless Resistance, quote, "...an infiltrator can destroy anything which is beneath him in the pyramid of organization." In order to counter this, Beam suggested white supremacists adopt a cell-type organization, similar to those used by communist insurgencies. I'm going to quote again from Zeskin's Blood and Politics. "...in these, small groups of people worked together but were known only to one another." Other small groups worked independently, and the participants of one cell remained unknown to the personnel of another. Thus, an enemy infiltrator could possibly betray one cell, but couldn't break up the entire underground. While this cell structure was an improvement over the traditional pyramid, Beam decided it also had weaknesses. The problem was it required a central command to give direction to all the cells, and their new vision of vanguardism did not support one single leadership. Beam proposed, instead, a structure composed of cells, like the communists, each operating independently of the others, but without a headquarters. Now, this put Louis Beam in direct opposition with William Pierce, his national alliance, and the idealized neo-Nazi insurgency he'd imagined in the Turner Diaries. The order had included a strong central structure, directing a series of semi-independent cells and wielding them as weapons towards a greater goal of disrupting society and rendering it ungovernable. Pearson beam and their separate camps were at loggerheads, but in 1983 a man came along with a vision to synthesize their dueling theories into one violent whole. Robert J. Matthews was born in Marfa, Texas, on January 16, 1953. He joined the John Birch Society at age 11. In 1971, as a young adult, he was on his way to enlist at Fort Huachuca, Arizona, when he heard a radio report on the prosecution of Lieutenant Bill Kelly, the American officer who presided over the murder of hundreds of Vietnamese civilians at My Lai. Matthews, obviously, thought the killing of women and children was imminently justified in the fight against communism. He decided he would not join an army that wouldn't let him murder little kids with impunity. Matthews first found himself drawn to violent extremism as part of the tax protest movement. He formed an anti-communist militia called the Sons of Liberty and did time for tax fraud in the early 1970s. Through his involvement with the survivalist movement, Matthews was gradually drawn into the cause of white nationalism. He moved to Medellin Falls, Washington in the mid-1970s and, in 1980, he joined William Pierce's National Alliance. Robert Matthews fell in love with the Turner Diaries and the vision of a possible white revolution it provided. His earliest on-the-ground activism involved the kind of childish fistfights with anti-fascist protesters that have become so common today. During a Nazi rally in a Spokane public park, he single-handedly fended off several anti-fascists and earned a place in Richard Butler's inner circle. And so, Matthews was on the Aryan nation's compound in Idaho in July 1983 for the annual Congress of White Power Leaders. That summer day, 300 wannabe Aryan revolutionaries sat down to plan the future of their movement. Lewis Beam and another fascist thinker, Robert Miles, seem to have dominated the discussion. Now, there aren't minutes taken in such meetings, since what was being planned at the Congress was nothing less than the violent overthrow of the United States government. But it is generally accepted that the white supremacist leaders who assembled that day walked away with two broad conclusions about the future of their movement. The first was that they would need to use computer networks to organize and coordinate the leaderless resistance Beam advocated. And the second was the value of cell-style organizations in taking their movement forward into the future. Their dreams were grand indeed. Robert Miles sought to establish a series of no less than 600 cells, each 100 miles apart, so the nuclear war they all feared was coming wouldn't wipe them all out. Miles's theories were very much focused around the importance of building a white supremacist movement that could dominate America in the wake of a nuclear exchange with the USSR. Beam anticipated nuclear war too, but he was more interested in building a network of terror cells that could start carrying out attacks on the enemies of the white race at once. But in order to do all this, Beam and his fellow fascists were going to need a lot of money. Computer equipment was not cheap in the 1980s, and the insurgency they planned to build required weapons too. Not just civilian rifles and sidearms, but military-grade equipment. Rocket launchers and machine guns, often bought from bribed military supply officers. In order to fund all this, Miles suggested robbing armored cars. Bit by bit, a plan began to take place. Louis Beam and William Pierce had spent years sketching out theories and passing out propaganda. They'd been rewarded by an American fascist movement that was hundreds of times larger and more capable than anything George Lincoln Rockwell had ever commanded. Now it was time for them to take the next step forward and make the fantasies William Pierce had written down in the Turner Diaries into a reality. Young Bob Matthews would be the man to do that. Chapter 5. The Hidden Civil War One of the issues with discussing the history of secret organizations formed to overthrow the government is that, for obvious reasons, an awful lot is left in shadow. We do not know the precise day or the hour that the Order was founded. We do not know its exact composition or to what precise extent men like Louis Beam or William Pierce were involved in it. Officially, the order was founded in September of 1983 by Robert Matthews during a convention he attended for Pierce's National Alliance in Arlington. While Beam and Pierce tended to approach the issue of sparking a fascist revolution rather differently, Matthews had deep ties to both men. He was profoundly influenced by Beam's ideas and writing, and was also an obsessive fan of the Turner Diaries. He essentially acted as a bridge between the two sides of the vanguardist movement, tying Beam's clansmen and Christian identity nuts together with Pierce's neo-Nazis. William Pierce called the Order the Aryan resistance movement. Robert Miles called it Bruderschweigen, or the Silent Brotherhood. But to Bob Matthews, and to most of its members, it was simply known as the Order, in direct imitation of the group responsible for organizing the fictional white nationalist insurgency in the Turner Diaries. It originally had just nine men, three members of the National Alliance, four men from the Aryan Nations, and one former Klansman. Matthews devised a six-step strategy for his new terror organization. He would start by recruiting a base of soldiers around the nation and train them at sundry fascist compounds. Once Matthews had trained a corps of soldiers, they would begin committing robberies and counterfeiting money. This would fund the purchase of an arsenal, which would allow them to commit more ambitious robberies and raise millions of dollars, which they would then dispense to different fascist groups around the nation. In essence, Bob Matthews had looked out at all the white supremacist compounds around the nation, places like Elohim City, the Aryan Nations, Nehemiah Township, and various posse Comitatus communities. He'd felt that these groups had huge potential if only they were connected and funded more effectively. The order was a way to do that. In carrying out this plan, Matthews was both working to fulfill Pierce's dream of a big tent fascist organization and funding Beam's plan to connect these different groups via the early Internet. The Order's end goal was a white ethnostate in the Pacific Northwest. Here, too, Matthews was following in the footsteps of other fascist thinkers. The Northwest Imperative, as it is now known, first popped up in the 1970s and was initially cheered on by Christian identity pastor and Aryan Nations leader Richard Butler. In creating The Order, Matthews had synthesized decades of far-right thinking with his love of the Turner Diaries into a serious plan for revolution. And on paper, it all looked kind of like a ridiculous LARP. It was even, you know, inspired by a piece of speculative science fiction. But Matthews quickly turned his plans into action. On October 28th, 1983, Bob and several of his men held up an adult bookstore in Spokane, Washington, netting $300. It was an anxious, small-scale crime, perhaps even a laughable one when compared with their ambitions. But Matthews and his crew kept right on robbing. Two months later, they stole $25,000 from a Seattle bank, and then $3,600 from a Spokane bank. They robbed a courier after picking up the daily cash receipts from a Shoney's restaurant and made off with $8,000. The order professionalized quickly, and within a matter of months, they'd also started counterfeiting $50 bills. By spring of 1984, Robert Matthews had proved himself to be a competent and dangerous guerrilla leader, and his order was quickly becoming the new big thing in American fascism. Dozens of young militants flocked to join and do their part to further the cause. They flooded in from other far-right groups with names like the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord, sundry posse Comitatus crews, and assorted KKK chapters. In order to build camaraderie and loyalty, Matthews developed rituals for his warrior elite. I'm going to quote again from Bring the War Home. They took their induction oath on Matthews' farm. They stood in a circle around a white female infant who symbolized the race they sought to protect. They raised their arms in a Hitler salute. I, as a free Aryan man, they recited, hereby swear an unrelenting oath upon the green graves of our sires, upon the children and the wombs of our wives. They swore that they had no fear of death or foe, but had a sacred duty to do whatever is necessary to deliver our people from the Jew and bring the total victory to the Aryan race. They pledged secrecy about all activities to follow. They swore to rescue any of their number-taken prisoner should an enemy agent hurt you they promised their silent brothers i will chase him to the ends of the earth and remove his head from his body their oath recognized them as racial warriors but also transformed them into weapons My brothers, let us be God's battle-axe and weapons of war. Let us go forth by ones and twos, by scores and by legions, as true Aryan men, they vowed. We are in a state of war and will not lay down our weapons until we have driven the enemy into the sea and reclaimed the land which was promised to our fathers of old, and through our blood and his will becomes the land of our children-to-be. In March 1984, the order carried out their first robbery of an armored car. They netted $43,000. They robbed the same armored car again in April and got their biggest score yet, $230,000. Later that month, members of the order also bombed a synagogue in Boise, Idaho. As the summer of 1984 rolled along, Matthews and the other members of his inner circle began to worry that one of their men, Walter West, might talk. Two of Bob's men shot and buried him in the woods on June 1st. A little more than two weeks later, on June 17th, Matthews and three of his men shot and killed Alan Berg, a Jewish radio host and anti-fascist who regularly attacked neo-Nazis on the air. The Berg murder officially raised the order's profile and guaranteed major law enforcement attention. The group's danger was reinforced a month later when they heisted a Brinks truck in Ukiah, California, and made off with a staggering $3.6 million. Now flush with enough cash to wage a revolution, Matthews and his order began buying up guns like they were going out of style— They also purchased a 300-acre plot of land in Missouri and 110 acres in Idaho. Each participant in the robbery got $40,000, but the bulk of the money went to other fascists around the country. Different organizations received grants in $100,000 increments. Matthews tithed 10% of his stolen money to the Aryan nations. Members developed crude code names and acquired fake IDs. Matthews even had silver medallions crafted to act as proof of membership. The nicknames were suitably grandiose, and what you'd expect for people who, uh, I don't know, they're they're all giant nerds. Lone Wolf, Field Marshal, Yosemite Sam. One member was nicknamed Mr. Closet for his love of assaulting gay men. Louis Beam was codenamed Jolly and Lone Star. Pierce was codenamed Brigham, after Mormon leader Brigham Young. Both men had medallions. In nine months, Bob Matthews had turned the dreams and theories of men like Beam and Pierce into a real revolutionary movement. He'd made the Turner Diaries real. New recruits to the order were reportedly handed copies of the book, and for quite a while, law enforcement seemed powerless to do anything to stop them. According to Bring the War Home, even if federal agents and a few journalists were aware of the white power movement, the main, the mainstream public continued to see most white power violence as the work of errant madmen. The phrase, lone wolf, previously used to describe criminals acting alone, was employed increasingly in the 1980s and 1990s to describe white power activists. This played into the movement's aim to prevent anyone from putting together a cohesive account of the group's actions. Their undoing came from an order member and former National Alliance goon named Tom Martinez. Matthews had brought Martinez in to help pass counterfeit bills around his home in Philadelphia. He was caught by the FBI and turned informant to avoid prison. The FBI used his information to trace Matthews to Portland, Oregon, where they engaged him in a short gun battle. Bob was wounded, but managed to flee to Whidbey Island in Washington with several of his most loyal soldiers. The FBI surrounded the house, and eventually all of Matthews's men surrendered, but Robert Matthews refused to give up. Alone, he fought the FBI off for an astonishing 40 hours. The FBI eventually burned the cabin down around Matthews, killing him on December 8, 1984. With their leader dead, the order eventually crumbled, proving, by the way, that Louis Beam had been wise to emphasize leaderless resistance. After five months of arrests around the country, more than 50 members of the order had been arrested. The FBI recovered a great deal of cash as well, but millions remained unaccounted for. They found some of what that money had bought, though, when they eventually raided the heavily armed Ozarks compound of the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. Law anti-tank rockets and machine guns were found hidden on the property. The CSA was not the only group who had bought rocket launchers with the order's ill-gotten gains. The first trial associated with the order took place in Seattle and included several members of the CSA. They pled guilty on weapons charges and were convicted of racketeering. Next, the U.S. attorney brought a 93-page indictment against 23 members of the order. Robert Miles, Louis Beam, and William Pierce were not indicted. In the months leading up to the trial, members of the order rolled over on their comrades with unusual regularity. By the time the trial rolled around in September of 1985, only 10 of them actually faced trial. This hardened core of loyal racists included David Lane, the man who would years later coin the 14 words that neo-Nazis still use today as a calling card. During the case, prosecutors specifically noted that the Turner Diaries had acted as a blueprint for Bob Matthews. According to Blood and Politics, quote, In an opening statement, a defense attorney acknowledged that his client was a Klan member and an avowed white separatist. Now I say white separatist, he continued, because there is a significant difference in an individual who professes to be a white supremacist as opposed to a white separatist. What was that difference? The white separatist is nothing different than a black nationalist who advocates a separation of races, wants to live only with those members of his race. He advocates the fact that races, when mixed together, cannot survive because of their division and their cultural backgrounds, their upbringing and their history. The Seattle jury did not buy the spurious distinction between white supremacy and white separatism in 1985, any more than the U.S. Supreme Court was willing to endorse the separate but equal doctrine in 1954. Neither did the jury believe defense efforts to impugn the credibility of Aryans who became prosecution witnesses, nor did jurors accept contentions that the defendants' beliefs were unrelated to the enumerated crimes. After four months at trial, all were found guilty. In death, Bob Matthews and his order became a potent symbol for fascists around the nation. In Raleigh, North Carolina, hundreds of them rallied under banners that said, We Love the Order. In Idaho, a group called Order Two set off several bombs in Coeur The date of Matthew's death, December 8th, became Martyr's Day to many neo-Nazis. Some of them started carrying out memorial camping trips near where he had died on Whidbey Island. But still, the Order had failed in its goals, and that failure had come at a substantial cost. William Pierce and Louis Beam had not been indicted or charged as a result of Matthew's activities. But they now found themselves at the center of way, way more FBI attention. In an operation named Clean Sweep, the FBI began seeding white supremacist organizations around the country with undercover operatives. Later in 1985, they stopped an Aryan nation's plot to kill a government informant. Another terrorist associated with that group was stopped after bombing a federal building, several businesses, and a rectory in Coeur d'Alene. In 1986, the Feds busted William Potter Gale, founder of the Posse Comitatus, in Nevada. Gale and several allies were convicted of planning to bomb the IRS. Near the end of 1986, the FBI busted eight members of a new group, the Arizona Patriots, before they could carry out their goal of following in Bob Matthews' footsteps. The group had planned to rob banks to finance a domestic insurgency. All around the United States, white supremacists continued to plot and launch attacks. One of these men was Glenn Miller formerly the leader of a group called the White Patriot Party. He'd received at least $75,000 in order money from Bob Matthews. As the FBI busted more and more of these guys, they found more evidence of the order's influence and money. Gradually, they pieced together the story of what had really gone on and came to realize that Matthews' group had sought nothing less than the complete overthrow of the United States government. In mid-1986, Louis Beam, Richard Butler, Robert Miles, and several other ideological leaders of the American fascist movement were finally indicted for their role in the order. The Justice Department charged these men with a number of crimes, including seditious conspiracy to, quote, "...overthrow, put down, and to destroy by force the government of the United States and form a new Aryan nation." William Pierce, oddly enough, was not indicted. Seditious conspiracy was a crime numerous communists and Puerto Rican nationalists had already been successfully convicted of committing, but no Nazis or white supremacists had ever been convicted of the crime. Despite the order's shocking violence and well-documented goals, this fact was not about to change. The trial convened in February of 1988, and the fascist defense attorney managed to exclude any black people from the jury. The trial was, almost instantly, a shitshow, and served more to allow Louis Beam to preach his views to the nation than to guarantee justice. In his opening statement, he told the jury, quote, The only reason I'm here is because I said what I think. If the Constitution is still alive, I'm innocent. Beam admitted that he had set up computer bulletin boards for different fascist groups around the country, but denied that these boards were used for any illicit communication. He told the jury he'd been changing his daughter's diaper when the purported meeting that created the order had occurred. He dubbed the government's case the Baby Diaper Conspiracy. Beam ended one speech in his defense with an almost word-for-word recitation of something he'd written in Essays of a Klansman about his anger at the protesters he'd supposedly encountered after returning home from Vietnam. As I sat there watching the flag disintegrate, rage and bitterness began to engulf me. The flames consuming the flag changed to flames enveloping an armored personnel carrier in the hobo woods north of Saigon. The cheers of the demonstrators became screams of a 19-year-old soldier over his radio as he burned to death, trapped inside what was fast becoming his coffin. The clapping of hands as the flag fell to the ground became the deafening roar of my M60 machine gun as I literally melted the barrel in an attempt to pin the enemy down long enough for the dying soldier's friends to reach him. Finally, at last, came the laughter of those demonstrators as they spit on the ashes at their feet, blending in my mind with the sobs of grown men as I remembered the armored personnel carrier disappearing in a ball of orange flame." After seven weeks of trial, Louis Beam and all of his fellow defendants were found not guilty of seditious conspiracy. They were released, presumably free to return to their lives in the movement. The Justice Department had taken its shot at the intellectual center of white supremacism. They'd failed. And ultimately, their failure came not from law enforcement's unwillingness to prosecute Nazi revolutionaries, but from ordinary white Americans and the sympathy they held for men like Beam, who billed themselves as warriors against communism and patriotic Americans. Beam's racism and his desire to overthrow the government simply weren't seen as all that bad by a jury of his peers. The leaders of the white supremacist movement had gotten off, more or less, scot-free. But the court battle and the months many of them had spent on the lam before being arrested had aged them all horribly. Richard Butler's influence would gradually fade after he returned home to Idaho. Louis Beam continued to be an influential mind within the movement, but he would be more careful and much quieter from now on. The heat brought on by the crackdown forced Beam to retire his beloved Interclan Newsletter and Survival Alert. The last issue contained an essay by an unknown author, probably Beam. In it, he wrote, quote, The Second American Revolution will be a revolution of individuals, a revolution without exact precedent in recorded history. Because individuals can accomplish complex acts of resistance without peril or betrayal, or even detection by the most advanced snooping devices, missions formerly assigned to groups may be undertaken by individuals equipped to fight alone. It would not be long before a young man named Timothy McVeigh would prove these words prophetic. Chapter 6, The Perfect Soldier. The 1988 Seditious Conspiracy Trial held important lessons for the chief minds behind the white supremacist movement. When they leaned into their patriotism, their love of an America that was white and Christian, but America nonetheless, they could draw significant sympathy from their fellow white men and women. Swastikas and Klan robes were much less useful than tearful stories of hippie protesters spitting on flags. The 1990s saw continuous growth of both the survivalist and the American militia movement, Neither of these things was inherently white supremacist, but Beam and his colleagues had been remarkably successful at seeding their propaganda into gun shows and conventions. As a result, the early 90s brought them a whole new crop of fellow travelers, men and women who did not identify as Nazis and had never held Klan membership, but were also quite capable of reading the Turner Diaries and identifying with its message. Randy Weaver is a perfect example of this new sort of recruit he was a former green beret a patriot who loved his country and working with his hands he and his wife Vicky were christian conservatives they fell in love with the first generation of evangelical tv preachers men like jerry falwell they also read a book called the late great planet earth by hal lindsay which focused around using the bible to predict the near future Lindsay's book convinced Randy and Vicky that Gog, an anti-Christian empire from the book of Ezekiel, was the Soviet Union. They became more and more drawn into conspiracy theories and convinced themselves that a great and fiery apocalypse was imminent. According to American Experience by PBS, Concerned citizens, they set out to spread the word. They were unable to find a church that approached these matters with what they felt was the appropriate level of seriousness, so they held their own Bible studies with like-minded friends and neighbors. This sparked the attention of a local reporter who came to do a story on them. The Weavers, Walter learned, did not appreciate the results. They felt betrayed, but they had never been more sure in their beliefs. A great conflagration was coming, and they felt increasingly unsafe in Iowa. Vicki started having visions in the bathtub. God was speaking to her, and God was telling her to go west— to find for her family a mountain top, They would be safe there. The Weavers moved to a place called Ruby Ridge in Idaho, not far from Richard Butler's Aryan Nations compound. Randy Weaver began to visit, attending several events and making a few friends among the neo-Nazis. The exact nature of what he believed precisely is unclear and heavily debated. He seems to have identified with some aspects of Christian identity theology, and it is safe to say that Mr. Weaver was pretty racist by normal people standards. But it's also probably fair to say that he was not really a Nazi or an ideological white supremacist. Randy hung around the Aryan nations because he didn't mind their racism and because there weren't a lot of other people in rural Idaho, but he was not the sort of man who would have joined a group like the Order. Now, I'm not making a point of all of this to defend Mr. Weaver, but I am bringing it up because it's important to highlight the kind of men the evolving white supremacist movement had started to reach. Randy Weaver did not start spending time at the Aryan Nation's compound because he wanted a white ethnostate. He was more interested in their picnics and hot dogs. The FBI wound up wiretapping several of the fascists that Randy Weaver befriended. It was quite immediately obvious that Mr. Weaver had no plans to overthrow the government, spark a race war, or do anything more subversive than live off the land with his family and occasionally picnic with Nazis. In fact, when other people in these wiretapped conversations would suggest committing crimes, Randy would generally say something like, We don't really go in for that stuff. That stuff being, you know, race war. While the feds knew Randy wasn't really dangerous, they saw him as the perfect guy to approach as an informant. He wasn't a true believer, and he was very poor. If they could entrap him into committing a crime, they could scare him with prison time until he agreed to wear a wire and help them catch some of the actual big fish in the Aryan Nations community. An undercover agent approached Randy and offered him good money to illegally saw off a couple of shotguns. Now, Randy was not a believer in the legitimacy of American gun control regulations, and he needed the cash, so he happily acquiesced and was subsequently busted for it. The feds made their offer, and Randy refused them. He was arrested on federal firearms charges and taken to jail. Randy managed to make bail, though, and he fled back to Ruby Ridge and holed up with his family and a fuckload of guns in the hope that the federales would not follow. They did. They did. But the attempted arrest did not go well. A U.S. marshal was shot dead by the Weaver clan, and the authorities responded with a blizzard of indiscriminate gunfire, killing Randy's 14-year-old son, the family dog, and his unarmed wife, Vicky. A standoff ensued. The law came in with helicopters, armored vehicles, and the kind of militarized police that looked painfully familiar now, but were new and terrifying back in 1992. The media descended on Ruby Ridge, too, and the assault on the Weaver family spread virally throughout the far right. The Weavers were the perfect poster family to illustrate government overreach. Footage of black helicopters hovering over Ruby Ridge and saint-like pictures of Vicki Weaver were almost tailor-made to sell the idea that the New World Order was coming for decent, white, Christian, gun-owning Americans. Louis Beam and his fellow fascists knew a perfect opportunity when one came knocking. Later in 1992... While Ruby Ridge was still in the news, the leading minds of the white supremacist movement gathered in Estes Park, Colorado, for a summit on how, precisely, they could use this tragedy to their advantage. The summit was convened by Pete Peters, a Christian identity preacher from Colorado and the head of a sizable Christian identity church, the Laporte Church of Christ. Here's how Leonard Zeskin summarizes the proceedings in Blood and Politics. For two and a half days, they met in committee, deliberated in plenary sessions, and engaged in the kind of one-on-one conversations known in the parlance of business professionals as networking. They made decisions in the name of Jesus Christ and Yahweh, sang onward Christian soldiers, and otherwise conducted themselves in a manner of quiet resolve appropriate for their surroundings. A YMCA facility abutting the park. No guns were waved, and even the most heated rhetoric seemed to have the blood drained out of it. Estes Park would come to signify a radical shift in the tactics of the white power movement. Like the 1983 Aryan Nations Congress, we mostly know what was discussed at Estes Park because of the things that happened after it. Louis Beam published an article in his new magazine, ironically named The Seditionist, and called for leaderless resistance in the wake of Ruby Ridge. Big Star One, a militia with members in Texas, Oklahoma, and New Mexico, carried out grenade launcher and mortar training exercises in rural Texas. The Montana Militia published a guidebook on how to engage in domestic terrorism. In 1993, law enforcement across the nation found 13 explosive caches meant to be used in attacks as varied as a National Afro-American Museum in Ohio and a black church in Los Angeles. None of this made the news in a big way because of something that happened in mid-1993, the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. The Branch Davidians were not a Christian identity sect, and David Koresh was not affiliated with the white supremacist movement, but the ATF siege of their compound so soon after Ruby Ridge was easy for Louis Beam and his comrades to propagandize around. This is not an audiobook about the Waco disaster, and I won't even try to cover what happened there in detail. What's important, for our purposes, is the end result. On February 28, 1993, ATF agents attempted to serve a search warrant about the sexual abuse and the legal weapons charges. People inside the compound opened fire. Four agents and five Branch Davidians were killed, and the situation devolved into another siege. On April 19th, the FBI, who'd taken control of the situation, launched an all-out assault on the compound. In the ensuing melee, several fires broke out and quickly swept through the structures. By the time the smoke had cleared and it was all over, 53 adults and 23 children were dead. Not all of those people were killed by federal agents or smoke inhalation. Several several were shot by their fellow cult members. But the whole tragedy was inarguably a clusterfuck on behalf of the federal government. It was, in fact, exactly the sort of clusterfuck Beam and his comrades had been waiting for. Kirk Lyons, a close friend of Louis Beam and a white supremacist militia leader himself, sent out an issue of his group's fundraising newsletter that featured a photo of a smiling 14-year-old girl who died in the Waco siege. The girl was, of course, white, and her photo was captioned, Why We Fight. There were dozens, hundreds, and eventually thousands of other similar pieces of propaganda. Gradually, day by day and month by month, explicitly fascist white supremacist groups began to wrap their ideological claws around the militia movement and suck in ever more patriots. British journalist John Ronson was one of the few reporters who spent a great deal of time embedded with the fringe right during this period. He actually visited the ruins of the Branch Davidian compound near Waco in 1999 with Randy Weaver in tow. They wound up having a conversation with several members of the Michigan militia who were there taking part in a vigil for the people who died at Waco. One of them told him, we are here to ask these people's forgiveness for sitting around on our butts and watching it on TV. What happened at Ruby Ridge and Waco will never happen again under any circumstances. If it does, there will be immediate retaliation, armed resistance from the Michigan militia. Now, in Blood and Politics, Zeskin notes that in the wake of Ruby Ridge and Waco, the Michigan militia surged to more than 12,000 members, including a young Desert Storm veteran named Tim McVeigh. Timothy James McVeigh was born on April 23, 1968. He grew up, mostly, in Pendleton, New York, and had an early childhood that was pretty standard for the 70s and 80s. Watching Gumby and Truth or Consequences, playing cowboys and Indians or cops and robbers with other kids in the neighborhood. Tim preferred playing the good guys as he saw them, cops or cowboys whenever possible. He was sickly and somewhat prone to accidents, hurting himself in all sorts of ways young boys who spend a lot of time in and around the outdoors tend to do. Tim was an energetic boy, and he might have been someone who'd have wound up on Ritalin had he been born a decade or two later. He was constantly in trouble for minor things, but he also had a good heart, as this story from American Terrorist, the fantastic biography of McVeigh, makes clear. Tim was playing near the pond when he noticed one of the older neighborhood boys carrying a burlap sack. The sack was weighted down with rocks, but the curious Tim could see there was something else wriggling around in the sack. He watched as the older boy pitched the sack out into the pond, where it quickly sank to the bottom. "'What was that?' Tim asked, running around the far shore of the pond "'where the neighborhood boy stood. "'Those are kittens my cat had,' the boy answered in a matter-of-fact tone. "'We had to get rid of them. "'For Tim, who loved animals, and especially kittens, "'the realization of what he had witnessed hit him hard. "'He cried about the incident for days. "'Tim fell in love with guns at an early age. "'His grandfather took him shooting when he was seven. This probably sounds crazy to a lot of people, but it's actually quite normal in rural America. I myself had an upbringing not all that different from Tim's, albeit in rural Oklahoma, and I was around seven the first time my uncle took me out shooting. Tim's grandpa, Ed McVeigh, was a stickler about firearm safety and considered safe gun ownership to be an integral part of American citizenship. Being small and sort of weird, Tim McVeigh was a bit of a magnet for bullies. He developed a deep hatred of bullying and a reflexive rage at the sight of anything he saw as bully behavior, whether it was from an individual or an institution. Tim's parents divorced when they were young. His sisters chose to go with their mother, but Tim stayed with his father so that he would not have to be alone. After the Oklahoma City bombing, a number of pundits would try to tie Tim's parents' divorce to his evolution as a terrorist. That would seem to be an overstatement. But he did tie his mother leaving his father to broader social trends, later stating in an interview that, in the past 30 years, because of the women's movement, they've taken an influence out of the household. When one reads about McVeigh, they get the feeling that had he been born later, he might have found a home within the alt-right. He was obsessed with the Star Wars movies and identified heavily with Luke Skywalker. As the 80s rolled along and home computers started to become more common, McVeigh became one of the first generation of computer nerds. He was on the internet before almost anyone else. His handle on those early boards was The Wanderer. We can't know everywhere he went in the early Internet, but it's unlikely to be pure coincidence that Tim McVeigh grew obsessed with survivalism and the Second Amendment during the years when he was most involved in nascent Internet culture. It's entirely possible he came across some of Lewis Beam's writing in this time. We know for a fact that he fell in love with a book I've already discussed at length in this series. Timothy McVeigh first heard about the Turner Diaries from an ad in Soldier of Fortune magazine. He ordered the book by mail and fell madly in love with it. For the rest of his life, he'd insist that the book's gun rights advocacy was what drew him to it, not its depiction of a genocidal worldwide race war. And it is possible he was telling the truth about this. Post Estes Park, the Turner Diaries remained one of the linchpins of white supremacist recruitment in the United States. Ads for it in magazines like Soldier of Fortune often pose the question, what will you do if the government comes for your guns? None of this is to say that McVeigh wasn't racist. He grew up in a place where everyone was white. At age 19, he got a job as a guard on an armored car. He later recalled his colleagues expressing casual racism towards black residents on the east side of Buffalo, and eventually adopted these beliefs and their propensity for using racial slurs. Racism was a fact of Tim's life, but it was not the major motivating factor in his behavior. What was, were guns. During his time as a security guard, McVeigh spent most of his recreational time shooting. He eventually got in trouble with his neighbors for doing so, and this seems to have influenced his desire to join the military. McVeigh was an excellent army recruit, and by all accounts, a very good soldier. He fell in love with most aspects of military life, although he disliked the emphasis training placed on killing. In a later interview, he recalled, Twenty times a day it would be, blood makes the grass grow, kill, kill, kill. You would be screaming that until your throat was raw. If somebody put a video camera on that, they would think it was a bunch of sickos. On base, McVeigh continued to read far-right literature, devouring conspiracy theories about the United States and the U.N. conspiring to steal the freedoms and guns of Americans. He handed out copies of the Turner Diaries to his closest comrades. He was warned several times by friends who read the books that people would think he was a racist if he kept passing that shit around. The Gulf War would give Tim McVeigh his first chance to actually use violence against other human beings. And interestingly enough, he seems to have hated it. He was not on board with the war from the beginning. McVeigh felt the U.S. military should only get involved in conflicts that directly affected the lives of American citizens. He saw U.S. intervention against Iraq as bullying, and Tim McVeigh still hated bullies. When he shipped over to Iraq, McVeigh was the gunner on a Bradley fighting vehicle— During a battle in-country, he killed two Iraqi soldiers with the Bradleys' very large gun and watched in horror as their bodies disappeared into a red mist. The incident scarred him. Unlike Louis Beam, McVeigh did not enjoy killing. The whole war left a bad taste in Tim's mouth. He was particularly furious when he read about the U.S. Air Force bombing of the Al-Amira bomb shelter in Baghdad, which killed 300 people, mostly women and children. McVeigh returned to the United States significantly less enchanted with military life. He focused some of that frustration on the black soldiers he served alongside. Several of them walked around the base in Black Power t-shirts, which infuriated Tim. He was heard several times using the N-word and had a reputation for ordering some of his black subordinates to sweep up the motor pool. When pressed about this later, McVeigh would point out that some of his closest comrades in the military were black. I'm going to quote again from American Terrorist. While he swore he never embraced racism, McVeigh actively explored the racist point of view. He had already begun selling copies of the Turner Diaries at gun shows, and because of the racist content of the book, McVeigh wound up on a mailing list for the Ku Klux Klan. McVeigh claimed he had virtually no idea what the KKK was all about the first time he received literature from the racist group. He was impressed by one of its pamphlets, which expressed concerns about the loss of individual rights in American society, and a desire to go back to the way things were in the days of the Founding Fathers. McVeigh sent 20 $20 for a trial membership to KKK headquarters in North Carolina. One of the enticements for joining was a White Power t-shirt that McVeigh planned to wear around Fort Riley. Why would a non-racist want a White Power t-shirt? McVeigh maintained it was intended to protest what he saw as a growing double standard in the Army. He said that he never did wear the shirt, but he made no apologies for buying it, then or now. I wanted to make a point, he said. Black guys were wearing Black Power shirts on the base. They weren't supposed to. I wanted to see what would happen if I wore the White Power t-shirt. McVeigh did not renew his KKK membership when his first year was up. He had joined the KKK, he says, because he thought the Klan was fighting for the restoration of individual rights, especially gun rights. But the more research and reading he did, the more he realized that the Klan was almost entirely devoted to the cause of racism. McVeigh's enemies weren't blacks. They were politicians who were pushing more gun laws. He decided that the KKK material was manipulative to young people. Tim McVeigh like Randy Weaver, was a perfect example of the sort of man Louis Beam was hoping to reach, not motivated by racism enough to have sought out the movement, but comfortable enough with racism and frustrated enough by a mainstream American culture to be radicalized by the anti-gun control New World Order conspiracies peddled by the propagandists of the white power movement. McVeigh opted not to reenlist after his time of service ran out, and outside of the military, McVeigh's life was one frustration after another, Despite his glowing service record, he had trouble finding work and was turned down for several civil service jobs he applied for in the state and federal government. He convinced himself that this was because he was a young white man, and thus the victim of what he termed reverse discrimination. Affirmative action became the focus of McVeigh's thwarted ambitions. He started spending more time around gun shows and flirted vaguely with some militias, including the Michigan militia. He started sending his sister, Jennifer, stories he'd read about the Rockefeller family and their supposed control of most of the organs of state power. The conspiracies McVeigh embraced weren't quite open neo-Nazi anti-Semitism, but they were kissing cousins to that sort of belief. From American Terrorist, The brother and sister's discussion sprawled in myriad directions, from the Bible to the pyramid and its crowning all-seeing eye on the back of the dollar bill. McVeigh was reading more anti-government books and pamphlets, and he shared them with his inquisitive younger sister. He wanted to expand her perspective, although some of the claims in the literature seemed bizarre and inconceivable to Jennifer, including one writer's contention that the government was building massive crematoriums and 130 concentration camps to exterminate individuals who disagreed with federal policies. The authors of the pamphlets, anticipating skepticism, warned that Americans risked becoming victims of the it-can't-happen-here syndrome when it came to government usurping power from the people. Jennifer wasn't sold on everything she read, but just as McVeigh hoped, the literature got her thinking about the government and individual rights. She looked up to her older brother, flattered that he thought enough of her to engage her in political discourse. McVeigh believed the federal government intended to disarm the American public gradually and take away the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. In the summer of 1992, he pointed to the events in Ruby Ridge, Idaho, as proof positive that his theory was correct. One of the publications McVeigh read was called The White Patriot. It's a magazine that was published by former KKK leader and Stormfront founder Don Black. It featured articles with titles like, Why is the Klan Opposed to Jews?, and also hosted essays from William Pierce. As McVeigh's life prospects dimmed, he grew more obsessed with guns and gun shows, traveling around the country, selling weapons and literature and survivalist gear. The gun show circuit introduced him to more fringe right-wing literature. McVeigh began to express frustration that American women were unfairly withholding sex from American men. He called them prudish and stingy. When the Waco siege began, McVeigh was instantly obsessed with the story. He drove to Mount Carmel and sold t-shirts outside the siege lines, communing with his fellow survivalists and militiamen as they worriedly waited for the outcome. And when that outcome came, it radicalized Timothy McVeigh as nothing else could have. He read that the government had used CS gas, which McVeigh had been exposed to during his military training. This, to McVeigh, was the ultimate representation of government overreach, pure, vicious, murderous, bully behavior. But McVeigh didn't stop at being furious about the murder of dozens of innocent people. He became convinced that Waco was the prelude to a mass government crackdown on gun owners and freedom. He told one friend that he suspected the feds had purposefully started fires in the compound, The government wanted it to burn because the government couldn't win. The public sentiment was changing. McVeigh's rage was reciprocated by the other men he met on the gun show circuit. Men like Terry Nichols, a sovereign citizen whose beliefs were essentially descended from the posse comitatus movement. McVeigh spent time living on Nichols's farm and crafting explosives, small homemade bombs initially just for the purpose of amusement. But over the months that followed Waco, McVeigh's rage and the paranoia stoked by years of fringe-right conspiracy theories and his love of the Turner Diaries started to metastasize into a plan to bomb the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City. The structure of McVeigh's attack was directly inspired by a passage from the Turner Diaries. At one point, Earl Turner's cell bombs the FBI's headquarters. Pierce goes into exhaustive detail about the device they used, a truck bomb made with 4,400 pounds of ammonium nitrate, essentially the same weapon McVeigh constructed and used to destroy the Murrah building. On the day he detonated his bomb, killing 168 people, McVeigh put a sort of manifesto together in an envelope in his car. It included many photocopied pages of the Turner Diaries. McVeigh highlighted one passage in particular from a chunk of the book where Earl Turner's cell carries out a mortar attack in Washington, D.C., Quote, the real value of our attacks today lie in the psychological impact, not in the immediate casualties. More important, though, is what we taught the politicians and bureaucrats. They learned this afternoon that not one of them is safe beyond our reach. They can huddle behind barbed wire and tanks in the city, and they can hide behind the concrete walls of their country estates. But we can still find them and kill them. And Timothy McVeigh, Louis Beam, and his fellow fascists had found the perfect soldier, and the perfect exemplar of Beam's concept of leaderless resistance. He was not a lone wolf, as some foolish pretenders of journalism have named him. McVeigh was radicalized by a constellation of writers and thinkers, as well as hundreds of men he spoke with at gun shows and survivalist conventions, and sitting outside the siege lines at Waco. He was radicalized by William Pierce, who wrote the Turner Diaries, hoping desperately that some young man would read it and do exactly what McVeigh did. McVeigh's attack prompted a response from the federal government, but not the one you might expect. While there were some crackdowns of militia cells and organizations, the Justice Department largely reacted by taking a lighter hand with white supremacists and militias. In 1996, the Montana Freemen wound up in a standoff with the federal government. As a group, they represented the synthesis of Christian identity and posse comitatus beliefs. They declared themselves independent of federal control and wound up in an 81-day standoff with law enforcement. For a while, it looked as if the Freeman compound might wind up being another Waco. But then the standoff ended peacefully. Video footage of the 23 adults and four children surrendered showed no giant armored vehicles or military-looking police. The FBI's hostage rescue team wore sneakers and casual civilian clothing. McVeigh would go to his grave convinced that the lighter hand used on the Montana Freeman was the result of his attack on Oklahoma City. And according to American terrorists, quote, Clinton R. Van Zant, the former FBI agent who had tried without success to negotiate a peaceful end to the Waco standoff three years earlier, agreed with McVeigh, at least on that point. Retired from the FBI and working as a security consultant, Van Zant feels that the government learned a painful lesson from the Oklahoma City bombing. In Van Zant's words, the government realized that it must become a velvet brick, not a battering ram. What an absolute classic tragedy, Van Zant said soon after the conflagration of Waco. What a total indictment of mankind's inability to communicate and relate, even though we have different religious or personal philosophies. While Van Zant condemned the Oklahoma City bombing, he felt that Waco had started a war, and that McVeigh's bombing had not, had not had been not only an escalation, but a turning point in that war. Now, my main disagreement with Mr. Van Zant is just with the idea that the war McVeigh wound up fighting and started with Waco. This war has been going on way longer than that, and it started at least as far back as the days of George Lincoln Rockwell. Timothy McVeigh may have seen himself as a patriotic American, but he fought as a soldier of the American fascist movement under General Louis Beam and Field Marshal William Pierce. The failure of the federal government, and almost everyone really, to see this war is one reason why things have gotten so bad as they have in 2019, the year that I write this. McVeigh has been joined on down through the years by dozens of other angry young white men, men like Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the infamous Columbine shooters. Most experts agree that Harris was the primary motivating force behind the attacks, more or less pulling Klebold along with him. It's not often reported on, but Harris was obsessed with Adolf Hitler and Nazism. He wrote constantly about Nazi ideology, his hatred of free speech, the press, and his desire to see mentally defective people executed. Harris was also obsessed with Timothy McVeigh. Dave Cullen is a journalist who spent more than a decade studying the Columbine Massacre. He found regular references to Oklahoma City and McVeigh in Harris's writing. Cullen writes, In his journal, Eric would brag about topping McVeigh. Oklahoma City was a one-note performance. McVeigh set his timer and walked away. He didn't even see his spectacle unfold. Harris admired McVeigh, but desperately wanted to beat him, carrying out a larger attack and killing more people. He did not succeed in his lifetime, but Harris may yet manage to beat McVeigh's high score. In the decades since the 1996 shooting at Column Line, it has inspired at least 74 copycat attacks, which have killed 89 people and injured 126 more. You can draw a direct line from George Lincoln Rockwell to William Pearson Lewis Beam to Tim McVeigh and Eric Harris. By the late 1990s, it was incredibly clear that leaderless resistance, as a tactic, was the best weapon in the white supremacist arsenal, but it would take the mass adoption of the internet and the era of the smartphone for Lewis Beam's deadliest innovation to see its full potential. Chapter 7. The Digital Reich. In the years after the Oklahoma City bombing, the white supremacist movement seemed to have spent most of its fury. Nothing like Seadrift occurred in the late 90s. Nothing like Greensboro, either. Nazi violence, when it occurred, was mostly focused around racist skinheads and groups like the White Aryan Resistance or the Hammerskin Nation. In 1996, a group called the Aryan Republican Army robbed 22 banks in the Midwest. Several of them had ties to Elohim City, where Tim McVeigh had also tried to hide out after his attack. But these and other eruptions of violence were dealt with in short order. By the time the early 2000s rolled around and the War on Terror kicked off, you could be forgiven for thinking that the white supremacist movement was on its way out. Everything You Love Will Burn, by Vegas Tenhold, chronicles the movement during this period. One of the largest actions in these days was an 80-man march in Toledo by the National Socialist Movement. Putting together a march of that size was the work of the entire national organization, and they were so overwhelmed by counter-protesters that they never managed to actually take to the streets. In 2010, the same group held a gathering in Trenton, New Jersey. Vegas attended to chronicle the event. And the night before the march, he was present when a group called Anti-Racist Action assaulted the Nazis as they ate dinner in a rented meeting hall. The next day, the National Socialist Movement marched. Quote, The entire route of the march was lined with National Guard and riot police. They had closed off every access point, and no one was around to watch the Nazis trudge along the wet streets while the rain soaked their black uniforms. They arrived at a wide square in front of the Capitol building. A few modest steps led up to the entrance, and a small podium stood at the top. Police had cordoned off the entire square. In the distance, the counter-protesters had gathered. The police, fearing another showdown, kept them two blocks away from the Nazis, just barely within shouting distance. So the rally was reduced to a couple dozen neo-Nazis screaming obscenities at 50 or so anti-racists down the street, while the anti-racists screamed right back. The National Socialist Movement billed itself as the direct successors to George Lincoln Rockwell's Nazi Party. In five years, they'd gone from being able to make a nationwide showing of 80 men down to less than 30. But looking at those numbers does not give us a full picture of the American fascist movement during this period. While the ability of old guard fascist groups like the NSM and the KKK to draw members had declined, the movement was deep in the process of spreading to a new generation through new means. In the last chapter, I mentioned John Ronson's Them John's book gives us a look at the movement in the late 1990s from the perspective of individuals like Alex Jones. Mr. Jones first rose to prominence within the fringe right in the mid to late 1990s, and his career illustrates the first stages of what would grow to be known as the alt-right, On paper, Jones was a libertarian, a political independent, who attacked Democrats and Republicans with equal vigor, seeing both as agents of the New World Order and the globalist elite. You would not hear any attacks on the Jews as an ethnic group from Jones, nor would you see him sporting a swastika. But if you dig in just a little bit, there have always been deep connections between Alex Jones and the fascist right. At one point in them, John tries to infiltrate a meeting of the Bilderberg Group with a writer named Big Jim Tucker. Jim Tucker was editor of The Spotlight, Willis Carto's magazine. Big Jim Tucker was also a friend and a frequent guest on Alex Jones's Infowars in its early days. Like Jones, Big Jim was obsessed with the Bilderberg Group. He viewed it as part of the Jewish conspiracy to dominate the globe. Jones professed the same beliefs, minus the J-word. That 1999 gathering at the ruins of the Branch Davidian compound near Waco, where John Ronson showed up with Randy Weaver, was framed as a volunteer effort to rebuild the Davidian church. The whole thing was organized by the then 25-year-old Alex Jones. He told the Oklahoman, quote, "'We've had school teachers and black single mothers and auto mechanics and doctors. There was even a Jewish rabbi out here one day helping us. Sure, we've had folks in their camo and their camo hats with the militias helping us, too.' One of the men who gathered in Mount Carmel that day was Colonel Beau Gritz. Gritz was a legendary figure in the Patriot movement, a decorated veteran, the supposed inspiration behind the character Rambo, and, of course, a hardcore believer in Christian identity theology. In 1998, right before the Mount Carmel meeting, he sent this out in an online bulletin to his followers. Do you see the sign, the scent, stain, and mark of the beast on America today? Are you willing to submit and join this seed line of Satan? Look to those who are openly antichrist, who in the world is promoting abortion, pornography, pedophilia, godless laws, adultery, new age international banking, entertainment industry, and world publishing. Wherever you find perversion of God's laws, you will find the worshippers of Baal, with their roots still in Babylonian mysticism. New Age international banking, entertainment industry, and world publishing is a little coyer than just shouting, the Jews. But Beau was more direct in a bulletin he sent out a year later, during the 2000 election. Jews, feminists, sodomites, and other liberal activists may install gore over an apathetic moral majority. Runaway abortion, antichrist, God, and globalism are certain. Meanwhile, here's a quote from Alex Jones from John Ronson's book, Them, during that Mount Carmel gathering. The Bilderbergers, said Alex, are the Roman Senate. It's a pyramid. They're way up there. Below them, you've got the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, and you've got us down here, the cattle, the human resources, and Randy Weaver is way out over there, see? He left. They hate that, so they scare the cattle back into the pen, see? Burn them out. I'm living in a place where black helicopters, 150 miles south of me, are burning buildings, terrorizing people, and I'm an extremist? Who says you're an extremist? I asked. The Anti-Defamation League, he yelled. The ADL are a bucket of black paint and a brush. They're worse than the Klan. They get massive funding from the globalists. It doesn't matter if your girlfriend's Jewish, your little sister's Korean. Alex's little sister is Korean. Anybody who wants to live free is a racist. The ADL is the scum of the earth. What we see from Jones there is more or less the same views that he would spend years broadcasting out to millions of listeners around the world in the late 90s and early 2000s. And if you look at those views independently, Jones's beliefs look like pseudo-harmless conspiracy theorizing. But placed next to Beau Gritz, we can see Jones for what he is, a way to ease people into Christian identity-style beliefs that lead, ultimately, to exterminationist anti-Semitism. Seventeen years after that Mount Carmel meeting, I published a study with the investigative journalism Collective Belling Cat on how seventy-five fascist activists had been initially converted or red pilled to the cause. My research was based on leaked internal conversations where these neo-Nazis, Klansmen, and other extremists discussed their ideological evolution. Six of them credited Alex Jones with their red pilling. They even had a name for it: taking the conspiracy pill there was an explicit understanding that interest in wacky conspiracy theories could, gradually, make people more willing to accept neo-Nazi attitudes towards the Jewish question. One user wrote, I don't give a fuck if you think it, it being the secret rulers of the world, are aliens or not, as long as those aliens are Jewish at the end of the day. For those of us who grew up online in the early aughts, the last five years or so have been a continuous, dispiriting process of watching outright fascist beliefs bubble up on places like Reddit and 4chan. It seems as if Nazis have literally eaten the internet we all knew and loved as kids. This did not happen by accident. Alex Jones is just one prong of a concerted digital power grab that began before most of us even knew the internet existed. Alex Jones is just one prong of a concerted digital power grab that began before most of us even knew the internet existed. In 1984, Lewis Beam used money he'd received from Robert Matthews' order to create LibertyNet, an international network of code-word-accessed message boards. The goal of LibertyNet was to link the white power movement together. It was used to spread recruitment materials, and its establishment allowed the movement to switch tactics quickly, as was seen after Estes Park. It also included personal ads for and pen pal programs, which could be as innocuous as connecting racists for social purposes, but was also useful for planning crimes. The internet allowed Beam to send racist propaganda into places where it was illegal, like Canada and Germany. After setting up LibertyNet, Beam wrote, Finally, we are all going to be linked together at one point in time. Imagine, if you will, all the great minds of the patriotic Christian movement linked together and joined to one computer. Imagine any patriot in the country being able to call up and access these minds. You are online with the Aryan Nations Brain Trust. It is here to serve the folk. It has been said that knowledge is power, which it most assuredly is. The computer offers to those who become proficient in its use power undreamed of by the rulers of the past. Computers were not cheap in the mid-1980s. Beam's work required the modern equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars in seed money. A single Apple computer cost roughly $2,000 at the time. Without the order, none of this would have been possible. And while law enforcement was diligent about trying to track down all the rocket launchers and machine guns and explosives bought with the order's ill-gotten gains, they barely seemed to notice the computer equipment Beam had bought and spread around the nation. After all, why would the 1980s FBI care if some Apple IIs wound up gifted to various Nazis around the nation? Ignoring this would prove to be a tremendous error in judgment. By 1995, slightly over a decade later, Nazi efforts online had crystallized into a cohesive and effective digital Reich. Fascists were some of the first people to effectively harness the power of the Internet in an organized way. The book Nation and Race, edited by Jeffrey Kaplan and Tor Bjorgo, includes a chapter that delves into the state of the online white supremacist movement at this time. The book cites Walter Benjamin, a scholar who wrote an essay about how new technology, like photography, was harnessed by the original Nazis. Quote, Mass movements are usually discerned more clearly by a camera than by the naked eye. A bird's-eye view best captures gatherings of hundreds of thousands, and even though such a view may be accessible to the human eye as it is to the camera, the image received by the eye cannot be enlarged the way a negative is enlarged. While photographs in a film best captured the character of the original Nazi movement, its modern descendant is best captured online, in countless conversations and debates across message boards, image boards, YouTube comments sections, and the like. In the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, and in response to the effectiveness with which anti-racist street movements like Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice shut down fascist street gatherings, the internet became increasingly central to the development of American fascism. In the early 1990s, Milton John Clime Jr. was a 25-year-old studying at St. Cloud University. His school provided him with a free Usenet account, and one of his professors rather accidentally gave him the listing where he came upon Alt.Skinheads, a neo-Nazi news group. Milton was one of the first young men to become radicalized into fascism through the internet. He grew obsessed, spending hours a day writing thousands of newsgroup posts and emails. He became a coordinator for several digitally inclined fascists. Climb graduated in 1995, and shortly thereafter, he had his first real face-to-face encounter with a member of the movement, Lynn Young, William Pierce's secretary. She gave Klein a check for $500, which he used to buy a computer to continue his work now that he was no longer at the university. Klein may never again have met another Nazi in person, but he continued his activities and later that year wrote an essay on digital strategy that he posted to the Aryan Crusaders Library website. In it, he wrote that the internet, quote, offers enormous opportunity for the Aryan resistance to disseminate our message to the unaware and the ignorant. It is the only relatively uncensored, so far, free-forum mass medium which we have available. The state cannot yet stop us from advertising our ideas and organizations. Now is the time to grasp the weapon which is the net and wield it skillfully and wisely while you may still do so freely. In the mid-1990s, Usenet, an early predecessor to modern forum culture, was where most online discussions occurred. The most critical Nazi destinations had names like alt.nationalism.white, alt.revolution.counter, alt.skinhead, and, as a prelude to 8chan's poll board, alt.politics. This was all very much in line with the ideas Beam had laid out a decade earlier. But Klein wanted to see his fellow fascists move out from their digital safe spaces, become cyber guerrillas, and, quote, Take up positions on mainstream groups. except on our groups. Avoid the race issue. Sidestep it as much as possible. We don't have time to defend our stance on this issue against the comments of hundreds of fools, liars, and degenerates who, spouting the Jewish line, will slaughter our message with half-truths, slander, and the ever-used sophistry. Clime's writing is particularly fascinating to me for the similarities I see between it and things I've encountered in my own exploration of the modern online Nazi haven 8chan. Near the end of his essay, Clime writes... All of my comrades and I, none of whom have ever met face to face, share a unique camaraderie, feeling as though we have been friends for a long time. Selfless cooperation occurs regularly amongst my comrades for a variety of endeavors. This feeling of comradeship is irrespective of national identity or state borders. Now that's not so different from what Poway synagogue shooter John Ernest related in the 8chan post he made announcing the start of his rampage. It's been real, dudes. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for everything. Keep up the infographic red pill threads. I've only been lurking for a year and a half, yet what I've learned here is priceless. It's been an honor. Climb's last line about feeling comradeship across national lines would also prove to be an eerie premonition of the future of the international fascist movement. Because during the late 1990s and early 2000s, the American fascist movement went international in a way it really never had been before. Even back in the 1930s and 40s, Italian, German, and Spanish fascism were all very different beasts. One side effect of the propaganda that started emanating out of the United States as a result of Beam's Liberty Net was that all of the world's sundry fascists started getting on the same page. I found a 2002 study by Les Black, published in the Journal of Ethnic and Racial Studies. Les interviewed an Irish fascist with the handle, White Wolf. Quote, During the height of his involvement in the movement, he was spending five hours a day online. He lives in an Irish town where there are virtually no visible minorities. He was drawn to the white power movement through a fascination with Nazism. He concluded, mostly Americans are on the net, but there are British, Irish, and lots of others from different countries. The net breaks down the distance. A person who was living on a 2,000 acre farm in Australia and had nobody to talk about his views suddenly understands that he can link with people he would never have met, can talk with them, plan with them, learn and teach one another things, help each other. Our Aussie friend, who may well be removed from the rest of his comrades, can nevertheless play a role in forwarding the agenda of a group. Racists love the internet. 17 years later, a young man who might very well have been that Aussie friend, Brenton Tarrant, drove to a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand, and gunned down more than 50 people. Like White Wolf, Brenton was a loner, spending hours a day online, building a sense of rapport with his far-flung digital comrades in fascism before finally deciding to take action. The thing that really shocked me when I started digging into this research was how damn groundbreaking the fascists were in their understanding of what online culture would become and how to manipulate it. I'm going to quote from Nation and Race again. This arena has spawned its own language and combines previous forms of right-wing organizing with the new political strategies. CNG, variously referred to as the Cyber Nationalist Group, Cyber Nazi Group or Computer Nationalist Group, is the brainchild of activist Jeff Voss. In his article entitled, The CNG, An Idea for Online Organization, a complete division of labor is outlined that assigns operatives particular roles within an overall strategy. Voss makes a distinction between idea men and men of action. The former provide background information for the latter to post with Usenet, The manifesto outlines four types of underground operative, a disseminator, or a subtle disseminator of information, who places it on FTP sites and makes subtle reference to endorsements such as info on news, usually pretending to be a disinterested observer, a pirate, a person who will pirate an account for one-shot high-saturation dissemination of propaganda, an impersonator, who impersonates the enemy posting, embarrassing the left and infuriating the public, and an infiltrator, who infiltrates the enemy camp. Fascists were some of the first folks to develop a cohesive strategy around flaming. As early as the 1995, researchers into online extremism had realized that a common endpoint used by right-wing activists is the stylized disclaimer, I am not a Nazi. Those same researchers also noted the use of mail bombs, or software that allowed fascists to deluge a recipient in hundreds upon hundreds of pieces of spam email in order to make an opponent's account functionally unusable. Twenty-one years later, when I wrote an article critical of 8chan in the lead-up to the 2016 election, my work account was deluged in spam emails. Wyatt Kaldenberg was an Internet activist affiliated with Tom Metzger's White Aryan Resistance, or WAR. We even talked about Metzger or WAR much in this audiobook. I had to limit my focus somewhere. But Tom was a major part of the Nazi skinhead movement, as well as an associate of the Order. Back in the 1970s, he worked with David Duke to help organize his Klan border watch. Wyatt helped spread war's message online and gained infamy as one of the first proponents of what would come to be known as brigading, disrupting other online communities in an organized way. Wyatt wrote, "'This ought to be our new tactic. Instead of hanging around the four racist newsgroups, we can hit newsgroups as a mob. We cannot win when we are outnumbered by Jews, but if we go in as a group, we can win with the average Joe six-pack. Post fact about black crime. Give them your update numbers, web addresses, push books, newspapers.'" Fascist groups like the Carolinian Lords of the Caucasus started going into newsgroups dedicated to loneliness and people who had just ended relationships. They also traveled into newsgroups for popular musicians, even the newsgroup for Denny's, which might as well have been a support group for lonely people. Raids like this were often just for the purpose of harassment. But over the years, fascists got better and better at spreading their ideology through these places. They quickly hit upon the tactic of hiding their beliefs as humor. Retreating behind the shield of, we're just joking, when people responded badly to their rants about Jewish people or black-on-white crime. Christian identity theology also spread online in this period. I found an article in the Journal of Black Studies, written by Tanya Sharp in 2000. She noted, The Internet has become a primary means for disseminating information for these groups. Currently, there are 25 websites and 13 newsgroups specifically devoted to identity Christianity on the World Wide Web, as well as 130 other websites that are devoted to similar and related topics. Individuals can tap into these websites and find procedures for making bombs, obtain hate propaganda tracts, and request catalogs that market white supremacist books and paraphernalia. They may also share Jew, Get Black, Gay, Asian, and Hispanic bashing sessions with like-minded individuals in chat rooms. Bit by bit, and almost entirely in a decentralized manner, the Digital Reich came together in the early 2000s. Law enforcement was not just helpless to do anything. It's debatable whether or not they even realized what was really happening. Most of their online efforts were spent keeping track of known quantities with long-standing online ties, like Don Black and his popular fascist website, Stormfront. Now, Stormfront is certainly important. Nearly 100 hate crime murders have been traced to members of the site. But the FBI wasn't even particularly good at monitoring Stormfront. In July of 2019, in response to a FOIA request, the Bureau admitted that they had somehow lost virtually all of their files on the website. So if the FBI only did a quarter-ass job of monitoring the most obvious Nazis online... It's probably not surprising that they completely failed to notice when fascists started infiltrating communities on websites like 4chan and Reddit. It happened slowly, camouflaged in irony and humor. As a young man, I was only vaguely aware of the changes taking place in the digital spaces I'd grown up around. Holocaust jokes grew more common, and so did racist humor. Maybe more than just growing more frequent, these jokes also grew more specific, evolving from jibes about Jewish people being stingy with money and black people hating camping to memes about how Hitler did nothing wrong and image macros that repeated bad science about race and IQ. In a 2018 article I found on The Observer, Holocaust scholar Timothy Snyder commented on the use of irony and humor by fascists to mainstream their views. What 21st century culture has introduced is that nothing really is serious. And that is an interestingly dangerous idea, because if nothing is serious, you can have this ambiguity where you could actually be doing something very serious, but you're pretending not to, and you can always fall back and say, well, this was just a joke, because everything is just a joke. But of course, you don't really believe that everything is just a joke, or you wouldn't be promoting fascism or white supremacy or whatever it may be. And then, in 2014, things rather suddenly boiled over into the cultural phenomenon known as Gamergate. On its surface, Gamergate was a reaction to corruption in video games journalism. In reality, it was an eruption of white and male supremacist hatred, an attack on modernity and liberalism by an army of young men who believed they'd been wronged by society. There has not yet been a great deal of research into whether or not there was an organized attempt by the white power movement to co-opt Gamergate, but there is ample evidence that the ideas of that movement quickly made it into popular memes spread by Gamergaters. During my research, I came across a thread on the website Reset Era, filled with other confused digital natives trying to figure out just what the fuck had happened with Gamergate. One user posted a series of memes he'd saved during that time. In retrospect, they seemed to show a progressive descent into white nationalism. The first is a propaganda poster featuring a cartoon mascot of 4chan's poll board, Polina, advising the Anons of Pol on how to effectively aid the movement. Polina is blonde-haired and blue-eyed. At the top of the poster are the words, Who is that girl? Blonde-haired, blue eyes, fair skin. Why? It must be Polina. Another meme from further on in the collection is significantly Nazier. It's based around an old labor movement political cartoon. Pyramid of a modern capitalist system, showing labors on the very bottom being exploited by the classes above them. In the Gamergate adaptation, gamers are the bottom of the pyramid, with games journalists above them, critical theorists social justice warriors like Anita Sarkeesian above them, cultural Marxist academia above them, and then Fafsalone's atop, represented by an Illuminati eye symbol. We don't see much explicit anti-Semitism in this cartoon, but it is there both in the references to cultural Marxism and in the caricatured drawings of Jewish video game critics. It's clear at this point that some of the old white power talking points had started to mutate to better appeal to modern and extremely online youth. Eventually, the harassment of video game journalists and critics, most of whom were women, grew severe and illegal enough that 4chan exiled its gamergators. Many of them migrated to 8chan, and over the next several years, they grew more radical and more explicitly fascist, until, eventually, they were openly planning for how to create a new Holocaust. It's impossible to know how much of the ironic fascist shitposting started off innocently and how much of it was seeded by white power activists, but we know they were engaging in that behavior purposefully for more than 20 years, and in the years after Gamergate, their work has paid dividends. The true danger of the Digital Reich was best expressed by Alex Curtis, the publisher of an extremist neo-Nazi magazine and self-proclaimed lone wolf of hate. In the early 2000s, he wrote of his hope that some well-placed Aryans will one day cause some serious wreckage. A thousand Timothy McVeighs would end any semblance of stability in this racially corrupt society. We have not yet reached the point where there are a thousand Timothy McVeys, but we have seen a market increase in the amount of right-wing domestic terror over the last several years, and it certainly seems to be driven largely by online radicalization. Robert Bowers, the Tree of Life synagogue shooter, was radicalized in part on GAB, a social network for Nazis. He announced the start of his rampage there. Six months later, the Poway synagogue shooter announced the start of his rampage on 8chan, as had the Christchurch shooter six weeks prior. There are other names on this roll call of internet-inspired fascist violence. The Waffen terrorist group, responsible for three murders so far, started off with extremely online Nazis working to form a terror cell in imitation of the book Siege, written by James Mason. We talked briefly about Mason and Siege at the start of this book. He was a student of William Pierce, and Siege might best be understood as a more academic accompanying text to the Turner Diaries. What the Diaries proposes fiction, Siege outlines in strategic depth. Mason advocates for leaderless resistance and lone wolf style attacks. Quote, the lone wolf cannot be detected, cannot be prevented, and seldom can be traced. If I were asked by anyone my opinion on what to look for or hope for next, I would tell them a wave of killings or assassinations of system bureaucrats by roving gunmen who have their strategy well mapped out and advanced, and well and nigh impossible to stop. In early 2019, Coast Guard Lieutenant Christopher Hassan was caught planning this exact sort of attack. He had a cache of weapons and ammo and a kill list of journalists and democratic politicians. Hassan was obsessed with the Manifesto of Anders Breivik, a far-right shooter who murdered dozens of students in Utøya, Norway. We don't know where he first came into contact with that manifesto, but spreading it has been a priority of online fascists for years. In the wake of the Christchurch shooting, they've started spreading Brenton Tarrant's manifesto as well. The Poway synagogue shooter cited both manifestos as major inspirations for his attack. In his own Rampage, rampage thread on 8chan, the Poway shooter stated his desire to beat Terrence's high score. In this, we see echoes of Eric Harris, the Columbine shooter who is obsessed with beating Timothy McVeigh's high score. Right now, as I read this, violent armed young men in, on 8chan's poll board and in numerous Discord chat rooms around the country are plotting for ways that they might beat their heroes and win a high score of their own. On Telegram, the Bowl Patrol, a group of young fascists dedicated to Charleston shooter Dylan Roof, celebrates St. Roof and fantasize about new acts of violence in his name. The yearly harvest in blood these young men will reap was sown by Louis Beam, William Pierce, and Bob Matthews. Now there is no need for an organization to buy up arms and plan terror attacks. The order proved less resilient than the completely decentralized radicalization and killing machine made possible by the advent of the World Wide Web. The Internet has given the white power movement a steady supply of armed and ready young killers, living cruise missiles, who strike unpredictably at targets across the country. Bit by bit, their attacks chisel away at our sense of security, our national stability, and our trust in each other. It took decades, but Louis Beam and his comrades did bring the war home. To all of us and against all of us.